Hello, everyone. Welcome to ATC Office Hours. I am joined today by Richard Forsyth, who is the Director of Courses at Royal Melbourne Golf Club in Australia. Good morning to you, Richard. Good morning, Micah. This is uh, great. We're just admiring the technology and how, uh, how clear we're coming through. So it's like you're in the uh, next room. Yeah, it's, it is remarkable. And I love being able to have these conversations with turfgrass managers and scientists from around the world. And I am especially excited to talk with you because Royal Melbourne Golf Club is famous. I, I would say it's world renowned for having fast and firm playing surfaces and putting greens in particular. And I recall when I played there in 2011... I was hitting some wedge shots, and at the time, I would have considered myself, uh, I would have been an eight handicap player or something like that, 10 handicap, but I was pretty good with wedges, and I would hit these wedges at a nice trajectory and a good amount of spin for the way that I play, and they would land uh, in the middle of the green, and then they would bounce like I'd never experienced before. And I've played golf in Scotland and uh, in England and all around the world. I hadn't ever really had balls react like that where the, I mean, and so then it finishes 10 yards or, or 15 yards off the back of the green. And I'm like, whoa, I need to reevaluate how I'm playing. So it was a level of firmness that I had never experienced before. And this is such a hot topic about how to achieve that. And I wanted to talk with you about how you achieve that and um, whether it's by the grass type or the sand type or the way you manage. So let's enjoy a conversation today about that. And uh, maybe to get started, I'm, is, is it, am I right in that Royal Melbourne is renowned for those types of surfaces? Uh, probably, probably not today. We've just had about 50 millimetres of rain uh, over four <laughs> days. But uh, look, generally, that's uh, and certainly it's my goal to, um, it's not so much uh, firmness, but I just like to see the ball bounce forward um, when it lands. So that's, um, that's something that we really pride ourselves on and work hard on. And you know, I have a few people say to me, or oh, I haven't repaired a pitch mark here in five years or 10 years. That's not quite true. Uh, certainly after rain, as I said, we can get some pitch marks, but rarely we would have broken turf type pitch marks. Um, we certainly have indentations at the moment, as I said, after rain. But yeah, the goal is to, to see the ball, regardless of where it lands, whether it's a low drainage point at the front or it's a it's a higher uh, bunker edge. We want to see the ball um, bounce forward when it lands. And so to achieve that, it, it, there's a few uh, few things involved, but um, you know the, the makeup of the sand, um, our grass type, um, the way we manage it, um, uh, all those it, it, certainly our, our watering uh, uh, irrigation program, uh, they're all, they're all part of the recipe, but um, yeah, it's de definitely a goal that we, we have to, to try and uh, have uh, bouncy surfaces. 
that I, I was reading some articles about the or they were published around the time of the 2019 President's Cup. And the, you know, they, there were just rave reviews of the playability coming from people such as Tiger Woods, um, just saying how this is how a golf course should be set up. So, um, and there, there were also some articles that said, this is not too different from the way the members play the course in terms of firmness. And it's something that was providing playability that could challenge the best players in the world. And it also was suitable for member play. And yeah, so I think that's the key, you know, the key thing for uh, the course still to be relevant for the best players is, is that firmness because, you know, it's certainly quite short, um, by modern day standards for, for that level of play. And so, you know, if you didn't have the firmness, you would just, um, you, you know, if they were throwing darts at the greens, it wouldn't be, uh, you wouldn't see the true strategy and um, you know, the benefit of angles and those things that come into play. But even with a short club in their hand, if, if, if it's firm and bouncy, then that's just another element. So, you know, some greens have a, you know, the firmer it gets uh, and and the, the speedier it gets, the, the actual landing area to put you, um, you know, near the pin becomes very small. And so the, the emphasis on accuracy becomes quite high. So, uh, and, and angles and things as well. So I think, you know, by, by keeping the firmness there, it keeps, keeps the course uh, relevant for that level of play. And so, um, you know, we always say to the members, it's not a, a it's not a dial setting. If you you're out to with the goal to have firmness, you can't always um, just simply dial that back for the uh, uh, the women's competition on Wednesday and then dial it up for the President's Cup on Saturday. So if you're chasing firmness, they're going to be overly firm at times, and um, you know I think generally our members uh, accept that and, and adjust to it. Um, so uh, yeah, but then it's definitely a goal, and that's what we tried to do for them. We're very fortunate the President's Cup that we had some uh, you know cooler, dry conditions. It was quite dry in the in the month leading up to and and during the event itself, and and cool conditions, so very little irrigation needed, and everything dried down really well, and um, we were able to get that sort of consistent, bouncy turf. We we actually enjoy seeing. The ball bounce uh, waist height when it uh, when it lands. It's terrific. Yeah, I I imagine. So when you assess firmness, uh, do you just do that by th- by watching shots land on the green and perhaps uh, throwing a ball down and just seeing how far it bounces up? You don't you don't really use a clag on a day to day basis, do you? N- no, we don't. Uh, we don't have a clag, uh, but we yeah. I, I, for me, it's just. Yeah, bouncing a ball on the turf, um, watching how it plays. Uh, that's really uh, as scientific as we get. Um, we have done Clegg and we've used the um, USGA True Firm um, just at tournament time when we had access to that. But um, generally, generally, it's just uh, throwing a ball onto the surface and, and seeing if it, making sure it does bounce back. I want to 
start with some of the stuff that might be unexpected to people. Um, if I, re it, well, I understand in America and in many parts of the world, it would be common to think that sand top dressing is going to lead to firmer conditions. And so getting out as much sand as possible, as frequently as possible, um, is thought of as an idea to, uh, to manage and maintain firmness. So I would like to ask you now at this golf club that's renowned for firmness and, and you want the ball to bounce forward. How frequently do you sand top dress? Uh, these days, once or twice a year. Okay. Very good answer. So that's, that, that's, that's not the mainstream, but it obviously works. Um, so when when do you top dress if those one or two times so that that's evolved i've been here nearly 14 years now and that's evolved over over time so i used to be on that um, thought process as well as more, you know frequent sanding was important to maintain the firmness but the the, the problem was that you know we had such a um you know, a lean fertility program, then, um, you know, it's uh, you putting sand on, it just never disappeared. It never it was always on the surface. So you were dealing with it for the next weeks afterwards. So, um, and that sort of forced our hand a little bit to sort of back away from the actual regular sanding. And uh, so it just evolved that, you know, really we, we didn't see any, um, detriment to the firmness by doing less top dressing. And so it's sort of evolved back to where we are now. And we're only putting it on very, um, very occasionally. And, and sometimes it's, it's not even, um, it's not even once, once a year, it's just, just, a, a, you know, maybe in spring, just to try and level things up a little bit, smooth things out, find down the leaf. But um, then, then we do deal with that sand for, for quite a while. Um, so yeah, it's evolved into that, uh, and, you know, without measuring, um, scientifically anything, we don't, haven't seen that the, uh, firmness has, um, dropped away by dropping away our, our sanding program. That, that is fascinating. And for regular readers of the ATC blog or people who have, uh, uh, listen to some of my seminars or perhaps some other of these ATC office hour episodes. This is something that I've kind of discovered by accident also with some measurements uh, over time at some different golf courses and just coming to realize that when you don't top dress, it doesn't necessarily, as long as the growth rate is not out of control, it can actually enhance firmness uh, because because you're also generally not punching holes that loosen the surface. And when we think about uh, core aerification and solid tine aerification, those are often done to open up the surface in order to get more sand down into the profile. But the problem is, when we think about that, that those also decompact the surface. And so the problem is, that's kind of, if you're trying to make it firmer, and you're decompacting the surface in an attempt to 
get more sand down, it, it's kind of counterproductive. And so just by skipping that type of verification, uh, and it allows you to also not put sand and still maintain your firmness. So it's, it's, it's not the typical way that I used to teach about this or the way that the textbooks generally recommend, but uh, it's, it's something that seems to be effective at some different places around the world. What, one, of, one of the things that I recognised uh, when, when I first came here was that um, the previous management uh, regime had been to top dress with a, a purchased sand, which was somewhat washed, uni uniform type sand. And that layer had built up on the, on, you know, in the top layer of the greens here, and it was you know, it was a, a whiter type material, um, droughtier, and it was sitting over the, the natural grey dune sands here, which were much, they just looked better for growing turf. Uh, and you know, prior to that, um, Claude Crockford, who was the course manager here for 40 years from 35 to 70, 1975, he, he always sourced his top dressing material from the golf course property. So he went off into the bushland and, and sort of um, mined sand out of areas and he used that material for his, his top dressing program. And we got to a point where that seemed to be exhausted and there was not opportunities to go and harvest more of that uh, material. So then uh, sand started to be um, imported and it was nowhere near the same characteristics of the sand that we have here on site. So it went from a, um, you know, a broad particle distribution to a, a, a sort of a subangular type sand to a more uniform rounded um, washed sand with, uh, you know, less silt and clay in it. So, um, and I recognised that that was changing the character of the greens. And, and when, when I started here, we stripped all that material off and reseeded the greens back into the what was the natural profile. Then we went uh, on a program of where could we harvest that sand from again on the golf course. And we managed to find some areas. And then we built some water storages and, and we were able to get quite a, uh, a volume of uh, sand from on site. We invested in our own sieves uh, and that's the sand that we've used ever since for any top dressing. Uh, which, water. which now that you've got, now that you've got the sand back to the original in the profile, uh, it sounds like you don't have to top dress so often anyway. Yeah, and we certainly don't do any uh, core aerification. Um, so uh, we haven't done that in fourteen years. Um, so we don't open the surface up for, for that. Um, you know, for that reason, well, one of the reasons we don't do that is for power annua as well, just to try and um, minimise any uh, openings for that to, to, to uh, get get established. But uh, it also helps, I think, keep firmness by not punching holes in the in the surface. So you don't uh, you don't solidine or core aerify, but you do do a certain type of aerification, don't you? Yes, yeah, so we um, we we um, use the uh, Toro Hydroject um, machine, and over the years, 
they're, they're not available to buy new anymore, but over the years we've accumulated um, multiple uh, of those machines. And just in the last two days, uh, we've been out and um, hide rejected um, the whole 36 holes um, in, in two days with the, the fleet of uh, hide rejects. But that's the only form of cultivation that we do. Nice. So that helps keep the poa down. That's a nice transition to grass. So the grass there is Sutton's mix, which is grown in New Zealand on the South Island. And it's only, it's custom grown for your club, I understand. And then that's a mix of brown top and creeping bent grasses. Is, is, does it have both species in there? Uh, we, we think it's predominantly uh, brown top colonial um, bent grass these days. Um, you know, the, the greens that were, were sown in you know, 1930, 29, 30, the original greens were, as I understand, were the, the South German um, bent grass mixtures, which were pretty common at the time. And that they were put in uh, here in, in, in the both both courses at that time, and then uh, uh, Crockford again, you know, managed those greens for forty years, and he, he kept the power at bay by using um, some old uh, type uh, techniques, including lead arsenic and other things, um, and um, was able to keep them fairly fairly clean for that that period, and then. Uh, again, change of management and some, some greens were changed over to Pencross, or all the composite greens actually were changed over to Pencross um, in, in, the, in the 80s, early 80s. Uh, and then um, perhaps there was a, um, people recognised that they weren't the quality of putting surfaces that they had previously, and that program was stopped and they, uh, the club um, and the superintendent at the time, Jim Porter, they went on a, a program of how could they recreate what was in the remaining 18 greens. Um, and that was the Sutton's, the original mixture that was provided by the Sutton Seed Company. Um, and uh, so there was some work done with um, uh, Keith Salisbury um, at PGG in um, in New Zealand and um, they took plugs out of the better looking colonised patches at the time and then grew those out uh, and then the seed from those was then used to establish a, a seed field and then that's harvested and uh, comes back back to us as, as our current seed mixture. So that's a brief story of how it's evolved. Well, thank you. That's, that's fascinating. And there's not many golf courses in the world that uh, have such an interesting story about the grass on the greens and do you do you interseed with that do you maintain a big nursery of that how how do you uh how do you make use of that seed and then how i know there's that famous method of uh of thatch control or organic let's say organic matter management, because if the grass is growing, it's still producing organic matter. You're not top dressing much. You're not, uh, you're not removing it by core aerification or anything. So uh, how do you make use of the seed in your organic matter management? Yeah, so, um, so 
seedings really mainly for the, um, the, the Greens nursery area. Um, and then recently we, um, there was a redevelopment done at the Sandringham um, public golf course across the road from us here. And we manage that, uh, that site, um, which has an 18 hole golf course and uh, driving range area and a high performance um, um, development area for Golf Australia there. So uh, we, we chose within the redevelopment to reseed those greens with the Sutton's mix as well. Um, uh, so we used uh, quite a bit of seed there. Uh, so, so that's, um, so now we have sort of 64 uh, Sutton's mixed greens but we have a, a nursery where from time to time, you know, where, where we do repairs and things, we, we reseed a section of that. So that's probably the only place we're really using seed on a regular basis now is, is in our Greens nursery re-establishment. Okay. So, you, so you're not, not really doing any interseeding um, at all? Well, we have on occasions um, if we've, you know, thinned out turf, uh, a little too much, or have have some problem areas. Um, we, we we would uh, put down some seed, but not, not it's not a regular program. No. So, how how often do you do the sod uh, lifting and then scraping off the organic layer that's developed, and then putting that sod back down? And how do you do you? Do you add extra sand, or you just put it straight down on the on the existing material? So again, this is another um, concept that's developed from um, Claude Crockford's days, uh, and he, as I said, he had those the greens for forty years. But in the middle of that forty years, he went through and um, he uh, would go through and lift the. The, the turf and put it aside, remove the um, build-up of organic material, and then put that turf back down. And then, when they when after his time, then the program to start to change to the um, Pencross happened, and then um, then the re-establishment back to the Sutton's mix. So there wasn't a uh, a period of um, years long enough for anyone really to sort of consider that program uh, as being um, required. And they, during that period, they went back to a, a coring program and uh, sort of traditional twice a year and, and, and top dressing program. Uh, and then when, when I started, we, we, uh, we stripped the top off and went back to, to as I said, to get back to, to the, um, the native sand underneath and then um, that was uh, 14 years ago, and since then we've done pretty much all the composite uh, holes again by stripping the existing turf off, stripping out the organic material, and putting that turf back down again. So, um, so around about that 10 to 15 year mark, we think is the is the timing to do that. Um, so that, that's what we, we we try to factor in, but. Yeah, some of the greens uh, on the on the uh, the non-composite holes are you know due because they're in that sort of fourteen-year window, but um, 
we're just not um, tackling those at the moment. But we, we need to in the next uh, few years. Oh, okay. You For those joining us live, we can show some pictures of this because you uh, provided me some pictures of this process, Richard. And I know some people are going to be listening to this later. And so we'll try to describe what we show. But sh is it okay if I bring up these pictures and show... Yes some of that uh, sorting process. And uh, I think the chat's going to disappear off the screen because I'm going to show this on the full screen. So uh, I'll say hello to uh, Neville from Laos. We got a very global audience. Ahmad from uh, Batam, Indonesia. Anthony from Texas. Nick from Western Australia. Uh, we've got uh, Matthew from Sydney. Warwick Hill. Rennie. Uh, John probably from the USA. Uh, so thanks everybody for joining us live. Um, let's see. I can bring up this, these pictures. So you start off uh, some his history from the club, grading a golf bunker with a horse and a drawn uh, scraper. I think, yeah, the reason I put that in there was just to, explain to people that the whole both golf courses were constructed via a horse and scoop so um, there wasn't a lot of uh, earth moving went on um, when, when the courses were established and um, you can see that was a newspaper article dated um, 1931 so that was during the construction of the golf courses and then as a reminder of that we have the um, the horse-drawn scoop and plough uh, located into the, in the front driveway in that picture on the right, just to uh, celebrate that fact that um, the, the, the skill of the um, the architecture and the construction uh, was was pretty good when you uh, consider the, the tools that they were they were using. And yeah, did you say you said Claude, Claude Crockford was there for forty years? Yes. Um, what what was his tenure uh, start and end times? Just when 19, you're referring to when he was there, what what years was, was that? 1935 to 1975. To 1975. Okay, so he was there, and the club was constructed 1929 30. You said. Yes. Okay, so uh, he was there, and was it Alex Russell that helped with the construction? Is that the name that is coming to mind? So Mick Morecambe was the, um, the, the greenkeeper, uh, the mm -hmm. head greenkeeper at the time, and he, he was involved in the construction of both courses. Okay. And uh, uh, Mick unfortunately passed away and then uh, handed, the reins were handed to, uh, to Claude in mm -hmm. 1935. Okay. And the next image that we're looking at shows a sod cutter a small sod cutter 18 inches i presume being cutting a, a very thin slice of turf that would be a 12 inch uh, 12 blade there yeah so we, we've we've tried both we, we can do it with both but we find that um when we're cutting the turf so um thin that uh we the, the wider blade sort of can distort and buckle and you get some unevenness in the turf so a narrower blade we've found to be to be better um, and you can see 
people can see that, but the turf is quite thin. We try, work on trying to cut it as um, just take it the least amount of organic material with the turf that we can when we do that. Right. So that's kind of by feel and you're just trying to get the, get the thinnest slice possible. Yeah. So it gets to the point where you, you know, if you're going on a slight uphill or a slight downhill, that will uh, change how the blade uh, cuts the turf. So getting the direction and going one direction only is quite important when you're trying to be that accurate as well, because going up slightly uphill or downhill uh, can change the, the thickness of the turf quite significantly. And then that turf is going to be put back down. Yes. That just, that seems like a nerve wracking job to do. I, I huh. can imagine, uh, you know, taking a sod <laughs> cutting machine and being the operator of that going across uh you know some world famous greens with world renowned turf that uh you must put some skilled operators on on that well you know we've had different people all uh, you know through the years and uh you know the, the the techniques handed on to to others as as we go but yes it's um yeah it is a bit um daunting when you when you first run the first line through a through a green uh, and then yeah that photo sort of shows the um you know, how the sod comes up in that sort of nice thin sort of um layer um and and the photo on the left is just that we do pre-cut uh with cross cuts using a um, an atom edger just to cut some lines across and then we run our sod cuts at uh, uh right angles to that so that all the joins then uh, are nice and square and, and come up um, um, evenly. So yeah, that's that's an important part of the process as well. Yeah. So you pre-cut the pre-cut with the edger, and then you run the sod cutter at ninety degree angle to that. So you get really nice pieces that come up. And let's see. Uh, I was going to ask. You don't mark this at all. I don't see any marks on the sod, so uh, you just put it back down in a different pattern than would, than it was picked up, right? Yes. Um, in, 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 in Crockford's days, they actually uh, laid what was sort of a tram track type uh, configuration where they would lay the, the, the long runs at six feet apart and then block the pieces in between those runs. And so the theory of that was that it all tied in together and locked in and knitted in. Um, of course, that turf was much more colonized and uh, had quite large uh, colonized patches of different textured turf. So um, that would look a little uh, checkerboard for, um, for some time, whereas ours is, starting to get after 14 years starting to colonize into into those sort of patches but um generally we lay that lay the green and sort of within i'm going to say three months but probably a year you you, you don't see the different um the different textures of, of the colonized what is the smaller colonized patches these days so it, it ties in very well after a period of time And now, now there's a picture that shows the sod 
cutter. So now the grass has been removed and the sod cutter is going over again, cutting chunks of, of organic matter sod. And it's cutting down, it looks like an inch or, or uh, an inch and a half or something. And then people are moving that with these chunks of, uh, of organic matter they are removing with a shovel. Yeah, so to establish the depth of that, we usually just take a, a little, a few little squares out and, and sort of look at the um, how much, or find the where we think it's back to back to sand, and then we um, we set the sod cutter at that depth. Um, when we originally did the greens, there was, um, or sorry, we greens that have been down for a number of years. There's a need to um, sometimes do two cuts to, to get all of that material away. Um, so, yes, it just depends on how much has accumulated, how many years of, of growth you've got there uh, as to where you can, um, where, you, where you would set your depth of your side cut. And that material, is, it's not thatch. You wouldn't, it still has a lot of sand mixed in there with the organic matter, doesn't it? Uh well, since we've, you know, our reduced um, top dressings, you, you, you know, a lot of it is organic matter. I wouldn't put a percentage on it, but yeah, it is. It, a lot of it is organic matter. Um, I don't know if you can pick up on the on the picture on the left, but you can sort of see the the, the hydroject um, holes poking up through the. Oh, I do. Yeah, I see those. What one of the. Um, one of the things that the hydroject does when it jets the water down, it actually displaces sand, and some of that sand, depending on the moisture in the in the green or the, the um, I suppose the efficiency of the particular machine we're using, um, it'll blast a bit of sand back up into that um, into that surface area as well. So um, it's probably only only small, but we are getting some. Um, amelioration of the organic matter by the by the sand from the from the hydroject you can actually see the holes quite clearly um, through that looks like we've lost micah for a moment we'll see if he reappears uh micah we i can't hear you <laughs> I oh my goodness! Now I, <laughs> I'm so sorry. My computer locked up and just completely froze. And I hope that doesn't happen again. Um, and then I was able to restart it. I'm so sorry about that. Sorry to to disappear like that, Richard. Well, I, I didn't do very well, Michael, because I I just stopped. I, I didn't keep going without you. Well, that's fine. I, you know, for everybody who stuck with us uh, live, I appreciate that. And we will continue this conversation. And hopefully my computer does not, uh, does not lock up again. That, that was crazy. Um, so anyway, you, uh, 
you show the interesting photo and there's these little pockets of clean sand that have that are appearing through the organic matter layer at the top of it so that that's an intriguing phenomenon to actually top dress in low rates from below by blasting the hydrojet down into the sandy layer and then it comes back up yeah yeah well i'm not going to claim it as a um as a really a beneficial um, method, but uh, that, that's you can see that's what happens, and it doesn't it doesn't always happen each, every time you do it. It's just certain conditions you get that nice um, uh, amelioration of the sand coming back to the surface. So, yeah, that's that's cool. So you 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 strip off that organic layer and take it away, and then. After that, well, here we've got a picture of a golf ball. So it's about a golf ball height on this particular mm -hmm. green of yes. that organic layer. And you're just getting down to the sand now. For We hear about the, the Melbourne sand belt. And I, so I presume this is like dunes uh, from the ocean. Could you describe like what this sand is, this original material? I suppose location-wise, we're we're you know, a kilometre and a half from the from the bay, the beach, uh, and the, the the ground um, that a lot of the, the golf courses uh, covers is uh, sort of dune formation, and that the sand is a sort of a dark grey in colour, and it varies a little bit. You know, the um, higher and drier areas can be a, a sort of a, a more coarser material and then the, the lower lying areas can be siltier, uh, darker material. So, you know, each green is really, and the point of showing that picture about the, the horse and scoop is that the, the greens were constructed um, virtually in the location they're, uh, they're in. So the soil types surrounding are what the greens are constructed out of. So, you know, a higher and drier area might be a droughtier sand than a sort of a, a lower uh, lying area so that there is some variation there but you don't really you know in terms of managing managing them there's a little little difference but not um, not, it's not a massive um, a massive difference but certainly the sands of the local area have, a, have an impact on the um, on the behavior of the green um, but the sand is and I think you've looked at the um, uh, a test uh, of our um, our sand stockpile um, fairly broad particle distribution finer than a say usga sand i think mm -hmm. uh, more silt and clay uh, subangular so locking together um, type particles and you know that can get very tight that sand and so you know our, you talk about infiltration rates you know you, you add the um, the turf and the organic matter uh, infiltration in the field are sort of down in, in, in you know under five you know in the low you know, two or three millimeters so most of our drainage um, uh, is really surface runoff yes um you mentioned that you'd listen to chris tritabaugh's uh recent podcast with doug soldat um and and i listened to that also and they were talking about green construction methods and uh, sand selection and drainage and uh, 
and and firmness and so on. And one of the questions or or the the question that Chris ended that discussion with, he asked Doug how Doug would uh, build a green if he had to build one. And Doug talked about variable depth sands and still having a gravel layer and so on. And Chris talked about, uh, I think, using a, uh, a no gravel layer, but having a drainage system uh, of pipes down there to catch, catch the water. Mm. And neither of them mentioned surface drainage. But the thing that I, I would have answered that question by saying, uh, I would build a green by using local materials and having really good surface drainage. Yeah. So, I mean, that if you have internal lows in greens uh, where water is draining to somewhere inside the green instead of draining off of it, I don't care what your infiltration rate is, how good of a sand you have, how good of a drainage system you have underneath. When you get hot and humid weather, or maybe if you get uh, cold and frozen weather, those are always the areas that have problems, uh, those internal lows. And I just, uh, I really like <laughs> good surface drainage to move the water off. Instead of relying on water to go down, I like water to move off. Yeah, and you see that here, you know, there's quite a lot of slope. Um, in the greens at Royal Melbourne, so that the water does um, spill off quite uh, efficiently and, and quickly. Uh, so, you know, you can in a rain event you'll see water uh, accumulate on the surface, but it's generally moving. And it keep, you know, ten minutes after the rain stops, that a lot of the water's uh, gone, and that's you know really really it's surface uh, movement, um, surface drainage. Do you have internal lows on the greens where the water can puddle? Uh, a few, not 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 many, um, but yeah, there are there are a few spots, and that the water can sit there. Um, but again, you know, you do you do some hydrojecting, and um, you'll find that that sort of those areas will uh, percolate through a bit quicker after you do that. Um, but yeah, we we have to uh, maybe squeegee the odd the odd spot off here and there. Yeah. So, yeah, you did share the sand particle size analysis with me, and thank you for that. It's very interesting. I've been doing a project uh, collecting as many of those results as I can, trying to understand more about what type of sand particle size distributions tend to work well and which uh, have been problematic, which ones people find provide a firm surface and which ones people find don't quite firm up. And... uh, I looked at those data that you sent me and I calculated the coefficient of uniformity, which is how uh, widely graded the sand is, which means are all the particles close to the same size or do you have a mix of small particles and medium sized particles and larger particles? And if you have like marbles in a, in a pint glass, and all the marbles are the same size, there's going to be big gaps between them. So that would be what would be called a narrowly graded or a poorly graded uh, sand or, or material in when it's all the same size. And those kind of surfaces would tend not to firm up. But as if you take those marbles and then you mix it with uh, finer materials, uh, such as... Uh, silt and clay and finer sand now you've got a mix of medium and big and small sizes and all of a sudden the pore spaces starts to go away and that material can 
can firm up. And so the coefficient of uniformity is a way to assess this and just put a single number to how narrowly graded or how widely graded the sand is. Narrowly graded, if, if I'm using the right terminology, narrowly graded would be everything's the same, closer to the same size, and widely graded would be a mix of different sizes. And if I remember correctly, uh, the United States Golf Association recommendations for a method of putting green construction uh, recommend a number, a, a CU value, a minimum of two and a maximum of 3.5, if I remember. And I calculated that for your sand and it was uh, about 4.2. So for people who are familiar with that CU number, the coefficient of uniformity uh, applied to a sand particle size distribution, you're definitely on the higher end. Um, and that means that that sand should fit together pretty well and form a pretty tight surface, which could lead to some of that excellent firmness. And of course, you want to make sure that you don't then have too much organic matter sitting on top of that sand. That sand has the potential and the ability to form a nice firm surface. And you, you want to keep that organic matter from, uh, from distorting that. So you've got this no coring, uh, minimal top dressing. Just let the organic matter build up until you decide it needs to get taken away and then you strip off the grass then underneath that you're stripping off the organic matter and then you just lay the grass right back down on the original sand belt sand that's right so i think just on that um, sand particle um, uh, shape and sizing i think uh, it was a good uh, it was a good comment i think in chris and doug's um uh session there they were talking about uh, three-quarter minus uh, road base and how that all fits together and uh, compacts nicely and i thought that's not a bad analogy um, to, to the broad particle sizes of the sand and how it all sort of locks together and creates that that firmness but um yeah that's a good point and the i think the question that that i don't know how to answer and and i i don't know who knows how to answer it but at some point, the sand fits together so well and it compacts so well that the roots won't penetrate mm -hmm. and you mm -hmm. can't grow grass in it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you, uh, the grass would just grow in cracks in the soil, but it wouldn't grow in the whole soil as a whole. And clearly with, your, the, with the sand that you have, it's, it's possible to grow grass. Do you notice that, uh, that the roots... Uh, seem to reach a layer or something where they just can't penetrate anymore or do how what what are the roots like on those greens the roots are concentrated in the hydrojet holes okay so which indicates you know they want they want to grow down that sort of loose fresh sand and then you know the nice thing about a hydrojet is that it blasts a hole that's sort of rough on the on the sides and then it you know, at the bottom, it sort of explodes out. Um, and, uh, you know, you get this sort of hollow down and then a broader hole at the bottom. So that ideal for the, and, and in summer, or certainly in spring when it's drier and you've got, you put a bit of moisture down there by the hydrogen, they really do seem to uh, follow that, um, that, that void down pretty well. So, 
um, yeah, a lot, a lot of the roots are concentrated in that area, which would indicate what you're saying, the tightness of the sand, um, perhaps, you know, restricts the root. And then you add, of course, you add the compaction and the rolling and all the things that we do, uh, it even tightens it up more. So. Yeah, I, I, uh, I think it's a, it's a challenging one because the, uh, you need to grow grass, so you need to have poor space and you need to have the soil with a low enough compaction so that the roots can actually penetrate it. But we're also trying to do a sporting surface that uh, has particular characteristics. So it's, uh, it's like cricket wickets, right? Those get rolled to the point where you couldn't grow grass in it, but they grow grass. It, it, am I correct in that they, they grow the grass in it uh, at a lower compaction level and then they roll and roll and roll and roll to compact those wickets for playability and probably the grass wouldn't grow anymore after it's been compacted. Do you, do you know about cricket wickets? Uh, I, I haven't actually dealt with wickets too much, but I, I, you know, the, so I think that the clays um, do tend to crack open as they dry. So a, a lot of the, the root growth would be down the cracking uh, in the clay. Uh, but yes, once it's, once it's being rolled, uh, rolled and rolled and rolled, it wouldn't be uh, that conducive to uh, growing good turf, I wouldn't think. But um, yeah, they, they crack and open up, um, you know, when, when they're taken out of play and then the roots would, would um, go down those cracks, I imagine. We've got a question here um, from Nick. He says, what's the machine on the left? And uh, there are pictures on the screen now showing uh, the surface smoothing, I think. So could you... Could you explain what's going on here? So once the organic layers um, taken away, we do run a that is a grade scarifier, Nick. Good pickup. Um, so we just run that machine through sometimes a couple of different directions just to um, loosen up that surface and give um, you know, for the roots from the turf a, a, a good uh, start uh, to, to bind bind into the sand. So yeah, that's a grade. Uh, scarifier and um, then that's sort of smoothed over um, both with a synthetic drag mat um, and or just our hand uh, work there on the on the right with uh, the, the guys um, boarding that out with a smooth board to get the, the levels back of course you know, we don't take any or record any levels when we do this we're relying on the fact that we're taking the, the material away in, in definite layers and then therefore the contours aren't, aren't being um, aren't being changed so and, and the other interesting point is that we don't put we don't add new sand back into that we would generally strip um, the um, the turf beyond the green uh, when we have a fine fescue grass in our surround strip it beyond the green and then sort of marry that back down and you know again the theory is what this enables us to do is over time that green surface builds up from its original um, height. By doing this process, we, we believe that we're uh, maintaining the green surface at its, at its original um, height. And so therefore, you know, bunker depths and, and things like that are, are less uh, affected over time because we 
we're, we're taking away that build up each time that we, we, we strip the surface off. So that's another advantage and it also allows us at that time to to adjust what we think is sand splash or wind blow or bunker sand um, fr from the bunkers. And then, um, so all that sort of work is done at that time, which is, was, is definitely an advantage. Do you get a lot of sand splash with those bunkers that are right next to the putting surface? You've got putting surface that goes right to the bunker edge, don't you? That's On right. some holes? Yeah, so, and wind blow as well, because the bunkers are quite uh, large. And um, then you know you, you can get um, you know, strong, particularly northerly winds where the sand will uh, blow up onto the green surface, and um, and also the sand splash from play as well. Especially in the bunkers that are say right at the front of the green where it's uh, it's high high um, intensity of play. Uh, there's a fair bit of sand shoveled out of those um, um, daily. So yeah. Oh wow. Um Anthony's got a question that I think you uh, you answered. You said you don't shoot any grades. He he's asking about that. Can you confirm? No, that's right. So we 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 we're just uh, stripping off um, at, at the layer of the sod cutter and then um, and then putting it back down. So no, we we have recorded levels, uh, but not we don't use that in in this uh, application because it's a very fairly precise. Um, layer that we take away this might be a good time to answer john's question from earlier um because we're showing the sod going back down the original sod going back down on the now uh pure sand surface and john asked if you'd ever consider establishing the newest varieties of bank grass ah now this is an interesting uh, an interesting question and it gets uh gets posed here from time to time because, uh, well, you know, changing climatic conditions we're finding in Melbourne, we're probably getting a little more humid all the time. And uh, you know, the brown top um, doesn't enjoy the, the humidity. And so at times people are suggesting, you know, should we be, um, you know, looking at some some of the more modern uh, bent grasses, uh, my view is that that could potentially change the character of the the green um, just by the way they the, the creeping bents, for instance, grow and accumulate organic matter, um, whereas the brown top you know is an upright grower and slow, slow grower. So there's, there's not the same rate of accumulation in organic matter. And again, I've got nothing to uh, prove this scientifically, but the type of organic matter produced by, by that Sutton's mix for whatever reason seems to be conducive to maintaining firmness. Whereas if I put a, a newer, uh, type creeping bent on there and we tried to manage it the same way and didn't top dress and things I'm sure that that would get quite um, quite soft and um, you know, maintain high level of moisture in it uh, in time but but definitely the the Sutton's mix the, the firmness of the green surface has something to do with the grass type itself and, and perhaps its growth rate and the way it 
way it produces organic matter. Again, I've got nothing scientific to um, confirm that, but that's what I see and what what I I believe is the case. And even you know, even if it was a power green, the organic matter created would be much, I think, much softer and a lot lot more. The, the Sutton's mix is more resilient to the bore when it lands and sort of. Whereas if it was a power surface, it would break the surface and and, and dig in. Whereas the, the, the Sutton's mix tends to uh, repel and reject uh, the bore more. So, uh, you know, I'd love to do some more um, some some more uh, investigation of that and see if we could actually prove that. But that's what we seem to believe. So, no, I would not um, at this stage would not consider. Uh, recommending to the club that we change the greens to a more uh, modern grass. And the other thing about it, I think, is it's it's quite unique. You know, we've we, we basically recreated a version of the grass that was seeded originally in back in the late 20s and 30s, and it's grown exclusively for us uh, and, and um, you know, just probably sets... Um, the character of the greens here, apart from um, you know the clubs around us that would have newer bent grasses um, and uh, even power greens, so it, it's quite a unique. And the way the whole package behaves with the sand and the um, and the grass, I, I think uh, be a brave person to recommend to to, to change that. But um, you know. I, I might be proven wrong in the long term, but uh, I think the package is important to the character of the greens and the way they play. Thank you for that. Uh, Eamon McCarthy has a question uh, that I have also. So uh, he asks how many greens get completed at one time. Is this something where you come in and do three greens all in one time? And I'll also ask how... How, how much time does it take from, from the time you start cutting the sod off a of green until the grass is put down? Um, that's another question. Yes, well, so these days with the fine fescue uh, apron and surround, we, we include that in the process as well because we want the, the sort of the 20 meter apron at the front of the green to, to bounce and react the same way as it does if you land on the green. So. We include that in the stripping process, so um, that can be then that can increase double the area of the green. So if our green is seven or eight hundred square meters, you know we've got at least that of uh, fescue to to lift as well and and go through that process. So if we were just doing greens, we could easily do two two a week, um, but. Uh, when you cut the turf that thin, you want to get it back down as quickly as you can. So generally, if it was just the green, we could we'd strip that one day, prepare the next, and be laying it day three back down. So um, it, it can be quite quick. Um, and the quicker you do it, the better it is for the turf because, and the time of year we do that as well. It's not, not easy to do it in summer when you've got um, hot temperatures and drying. Um, that sod will dry out very quickly. It's almost like managing washed sod because you don't, you just don't have any um, 
any resistance there when there's no roots on it um, to, to any moisture stress. So, um, so we generally do it sort of end of winter, early spring is our ideal timing. Um, and uh, yeah, so we, we, we would probably these days try and do one hole uh, a week uh, would be our uh, conservative way, but we could do two, um, but, but generally be one hole per week. But that's sort of often you know, 1,800 or 2,000 square metres of turf to lift, strip mm -hmm. out that much organic matter and then relay the turf. And after the turf has been relayed, when does the green or the hole open, reopen for play? Uh, generally, it's a three-week turnaround, three to four weeks. Um, again, you know, if you do it early spring and you've got growth on your side, you know, you, you want to get roots back down and then some, uh, some top dressing sand on there. Um, but my, my theory has always been a balance between what's best for the turf and what's best for the, for the members. And so, you know, you wouldn't get to do this, um, you know, if we talk, talk, if it was a three month process, we wouldn't get to do it, um, as often as we would like, because people wouldn't tolerate it, but we always, my argument is always that we don't have any downtime from a, um, you know, coring or top dressing point of view. So um, to to go every 10 to 15 years and take a green out of play for four weeks um, is more palatable than um, coring it twice a year and sanding it and having uh, perhaps, you know, 10 weeks of uh, substandard sub um, surfaces so that's always been my argument so people are on on board with that um but you know i think what we're talking about previously michael was also the um you know the, the greens don't really get their character back for for you know, multiple years until the root system really um, gets established again and it's that discussion about you know what impact does the turf and the the roots play on the firmness uh, aspect. And again, using Chris and Doug's uh, comment about the roots being like the rebar of the uh, of the engineering or the construction is, is pretty true. In, when we put that turf back down, and you can imagine it's very thin and there's not a lot of roots, um, it doesn't really get its mojo back for at least, we think, year three um, afterwards. I mean, it's firm and it's, it's hard to walk on but in terms of it, the ball reaction on it, it it doesn't bounce it's sort of like a, it's almost like a tennis ball scenario it hits and, and and will stop quickly whereas if you get the once you've got the roots as part of the the program then you'll start to get the bounce and you'll get the more um the what's we perceive as, as more firmness so um yeah, the, the roots and the grass um, type really uh, have a have a uh, impact on that. So even though we we do it, it, the green's probably not back to playing the way we'd like it to play for for you know, at least at least two years, probably three. I I think it's really fascinating uh, how that is. Um, yeah, just this whole firmness topic uh, is is one that a lot of people talk about and yet some listening to what you're doing 
and you're saying it takes three years of grass growth and actually organic matter production and and the roots kind of binding everything together to achieve the even firmer surfaces than if you're just on the pure sand immediately. Um, the lack of coring, the lack of solid tine aeration, the, um, the almost shockingly low amount of sand top dressing, uh, the, these are all atypical things. And I know in, in Australia, it's common to do something which is called a, a annual renovation, right? Where um, Americans might call it a, a cult, intensive cultivation or something where you would scarify and uh, core and top dress and so on um, and really disrupt the surfaces pretty intensely for a week or two. And that would be the main event for the year for organic matter management, but it's done annually. Is, is that is that a typical Australian way to manage to do an annual renovation? Yes, uh, although you know that I think that's been it's less of a mandatory thing these days. I think there's there's plenty of superintendents and clubs, you know doing alternatives such as, you know, verti drain, solid, and then, and then top dress. Um, but yeah, traditionally it's been that, um, core and, or, and or scarify type scenario, but, um, definitely a trend to, to less of that in, in the last 10 or 15 years where, you know, there's plenty, as I said, plenty of clubs that don't put a coring machine near their green, they might use a solid, as I said, solid tie aerification. Um, not, too, not too many just doing uh, hydroject, as I understand, but... Um, oh, that, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah that, it's nice that you have so many of those machines. I, I'll show a picture that you also shared with me. How many, uh, how many working, <laughs> working hydrojects do you have in your, in your shop? Uh, well, I don't want to uh, show off, so I, I, <laughs> you don't have. Yeah, I, I was going to say enough, but uh, <laughs> no, the answer is ten. Oh, nice! That's so, nice. And we've procured them from all around the world. Um, people have got to know, and perhaps if there's anyone listening who has one in the corner of their um, facility, they might want to dust it off and go and use it. Now that's the only problem. If anyone had a surplus uh, hydroject, I'd be uh, interested to to hear from them. So yeah, I, um, but yes, look, they do. They're, they're a bit high maintenance, um, and um, you know, parts are getting harder to to source. Um, so you know, the concept was buy up. Or people have even given them to us, um, um, but uh, get it get a few so that you can then start to swap parts around and sort of keep them operating that way. But um, yeah, at the moment, we've, we've got 10 that, um, that do. Uh, so we, we can set, because they are slow and you've got the hose and it's a bit cumbersome. See that photo on the left is, I think, showing sand coming to the surface uh, there yep. from, from the process. Um, so a bit, 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 um, a bit of interruption to the golf uh, when you're doing that. So uh, having multiple machines to sort of go out, put six or eight or or so out, uh, you know, early in the morning, you can get the first lot of greens done before the golfers get there and then sort of work through the course that way and you can sort of um, 
whereas you know if you if you had one or two machines it's a it's a multiple day scenario where we can do certainly do one course in a day quite comfortably um, with multiple machines did you say how how often you tend to do the hydrojecting uh well we'd like to do it more often probably but it's it's it's, it's a time thing um I, i'm going to say we probably do six or eight times a year okay and then the roots are predominantly in those hydrojet holes yeah i don't think i shared a photo of that but there's um there is a good photo of um and i don't think it's in in the ones i sent you but yeah we you know we pull out a plug and you know we're all familiar with the ones where you know you do a new green you've got this great root system um, but but we pull our plug out and, and you see uh, the roots poking out the bottom of the, the hydrojet holes generally more, more than a mass of roots um, through the whole um, profile mm -hmm. yeah so i mean that may be why the usga uh, recommendations are for a maximum cu of 3.5 because mm. maybe uh, beyond that the medium just compacts so much that the roots don't want to grow in it it, it could be yeah. I this is something that I'm I'm still studying and learning about well the, the you know the old days there was plenty of soil um, based greens where you know greens were constructed on a, a soil that would be even tighter and um, um, compact compact more than our sand so yeah grass has been able to grow in those environments it's yeah so the soil will as you mentioned about the cricket wickets the, that clay when it dries it will crack so you'll you you would get some fractures um yeah i mean there's such a balance between growing grass and having enough aeration in the soil and enough decompacted areas in the soil for the grass to grow um that can be unique to each type of soil well we have a few more questions um let's see nick nick asks at that three-year stage when you're saying you're really having the greens to have their mojo back what depth on average would the roots be mm. i'm not sure if i'm going to answer that accurately i'd say um around 100 mil four inches four inches and let's see chris tritabaugh says that he has a hydroject but you can't <laughs> have it so that's a nice well thanks chris yeah but then he, then he says we can work out a deal i wonder what that means yeah i i i don't know what that means <laughs> but uh yeah i i don't know he he's close to the toro headquarters maybe he could encourage them to make that machine again i know there's uh there are, those are a very popular machine for being very effective um and really i don't know that there's a machine out there that can accomplish quite the same result um, we so. did um well perhaps chris means that he the deal might be that he could bring it with him in his carry-on. He could come out for a visit. Perhaps that's what he's referring to. Uh, yeah. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Well, that, 
Okay. Well, I'm not sure that that's Chris's decision to make. I, it might be the club's uh, <laughs> interject. Yeah. Yeah, but okay. anyway, yeah, I'm, I'm sure he can do something. He 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 might be able to to share it. That would be. Well, we did. Um, we have uh, invested in uh, the VGR Top Changer. I don't know if you've seen that machine, but um, it uses the water injection scenario, but it also has a sandbox on it that. Um, uh, you know, you can put the sand in, and it'll draw draw the sand into the holes. Oh, um, so it's is something like the dry eject. Yes, yes, mm -hmm. similar. I, okay, but a tractor mounted uh, machine, and the idea or the, the the inspiration to to invest in that machine was to perhaps help our um, our fescue approaches uh, get some more sand incorporated in those because as much as we try to match that firmness um, we seem to always have uh, a little bit of a difference between the the fescue reaction to the to the bent grass and so the bent grass will tend to um, if you just land on the green it'll bounce firmer than it will on on the fescue so the inspirations to try and get a little bit more sand mixed through the fescue but it's only a it's only a theory at this stage, but we've that's why we've invested in the machine to try and do that. I have a question to go to an adjacent course. Um, we we were talking last month about the uh, Sandringham golf course, which you maintain, and if I recall. Uh, it had a lot of thatch on it at at one time yes. and that thatch could you could you tell the story about what that course uh was like and, and when what your responsibilities are for that and and what the greens uh have been like is that photo that i've shared that photo i think of the mm -hmm. let me find that photo but basically, just a short, brief history there. So that that um, we took over managing or maintaining the course in uh, 2010, and at that time the greens were uh, predominantly power, but you, you know you could see some bent grass. So perhaps 80, 20, 80 percent power, 20 percent bent grass, uh, and they'd been. Uh, it's a predominantly Pencross bent it, it was and so um, we, we, we were low inputs there staff of four um, not not the ability to do too much in the way of projects or anything so we sort of analyzed the greens and felt that they'd probably been watered uh, more than they needed to be over the years they'd certainly been fertilized more and then you know it was on that um, that cycle of you know high high nitrogen, then you know, disease, and then fungicide, and then high nitrogen again. And so, quite a quite an extensive organic matter layer built up. And so, we just looked at them and sort of said, well, we need to dry them out. We need to back off our nitrogen, and um, we're just going to see what happens. And we. Uh, managed those greens for 10 years and did not put any nitrogen on them whatsoever. So that's a public golf course 
75,000 rounds plus per annum. And we maintain those greens for 10 years with no, no nitrogen, virtually no fertility, to be honest. Um, and what the outcome of that was in those photos, and this was one of the last areas, this is the putting green where everyone walks on and off. But you know, after five years, we probably swung it back the other way. It was 80% bent grass and 20% power. And, and you know, you can see from that photo how well the power is and the bent grass is looking uh, remarkably healthy and spreading. And, and that, that was what we saw over that period of time. And of course, with a low, if you talk about low inputs, it was, you know, it meant that you mowed them, you know, a couple of times a week. Um, because they weren't growing very, very rapidly. Um, you're putting a lot less water, certainly no fertiliser and, and a lot less fungicide on than the previous model. Um, so, uh, you know, what, what was happening? Why were they um, behaving like that? I only assume that it was the organic matter breaking down that was keeping the grass, uh, giving it enough nutrition to, to keep itself uh, going um and it was a really interesting exercise so um you know that that was what we saw there but you know since then we've um we've uh rebuilt the whole golf course with a, a ocm um architects re redesigned and uh we've built something that's more of a you know more, more of a sand belt look to it with its bunkering and um and green style uh so you know, we've put Sutton's mix on the greens and fine fescue on the surrounds. They're the same as we have at Royal Melbourne. Uh, it's a $50 green fee. Uh, give people the experience of a, of a, a mini Royal Melbourne, I suppose, or a mini or a sand belt golf course for, for the public to, to experience. And that's been our, our goal there. Uh, still a work in progress, um, but uh, we, we're, we're enjoying, you know, the... the um, conditions that are being prepared there uh, and you know I think it, it's been a been a, a great facility now for for the the public golfer and also um, for the, our high performance program for golf Australia that use the um, the practice facilities that we we maintain as well so um, and that was a an 18 million dollar project that was involved a uh, uh, building a, a facility that has all the or three uh, labs for for the high performance uh, golf program. It has you know, putting and gymnasium uh, and all the admin and office areas for, for Golf Australia and, and the PGA of Australia as well. Um, and then our our sort of um, golf um, starting and, and cafe and that sort of thing. So um, that. Uh, that, that project's been really exciting one to do and, and you know probably the only, only regret is that uh, not being able to see those greens keep going for another 10 years and see them uh, see how they would uh, fare with uh, still with no no input of f fertility yeah that's so the organic matter just kind of melted away as it broke down and then the bent came to dominate and you weren't doing interseeding with bent grass at all it was just no. from the bent that was already there yes so if you would have been interceding, it's possible that it could have been a more dramatic uh, or or an almost complete overtaking of the poet, do you think? 
the, 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 those photos are probably a little um, misleading because that, that was the very last and probably the most stubborn area to, to see the transition. It was just that it was so it was so obvious there, I just had to take the photo. But uh, on the greens in general, it was a more, was a softer transition that sort of wasn't as lumpy and bumpy as that looks there. It was sort of a, a much softer transition from one to the other. Um, so yeah, that, that's a little misleading, but it sort of very, very much shows how uh, how how well it was was working. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that uh, that is that is very cool. So um, I'm I'm also struck by seventy five thousand rounds and no nitrogen. And then I'm curious about seventy five thousand rounds and uh, Sutton's mix on the greens and fescue surrounds. How how do those grasses stand up to that kind of traffic after the renovation? Uh, yeah. Well, that was the concern, and we, we were a little um, un- uncertain about that. Um, and, and you know, now we 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 need to be uh, a little little more um, friendly with our, our nitrogen applications because they're they're new and they're built onto sort of um, you know, just push up sand type type green. So um, we've just got to keep the, the nitrogen. Uh, there to keep them grow, growing to um, you know manage the wear. So uh, we can definitely see wear and tear, um, but you know we're just trying to keep the the grass cover there with the minimum amount of nitrogen we can, um, and still conscious of you know not promoting power and um, things as well. So, but but look, they they they're standing up to it. Uh, I, I think where we have difficulty with the fescue is in the areas that are wetter and um, have the traffic. So uh, the, the site is probably not as um, good in terms of its sand consistency there. I would say it's 50% of the property is sand and the, and the other 50s are heavier ground. So water can sit around in, in wet periods and that's when the fescue then tends to check out and not uh, not enjoy those conditions so that that's where we're battling a little bit with the traffic and um and moisture but where it's on you know drier um deeper sands it's it's fine it's handling it well let's uh we've we've come to almost 90 minutes of this i you mentioned at the very start about managing the water or irrigation so i wanted to ask you about that how you uh, do that to manage bent grass versus poa and how you uh, maintain the firmness and the playability with what what role irrigation has with that and then we'll a- answer any uh, remaining questions if anybody has questions go ahead and drop them in the chat and we'll try to answer those and uh, then we'll sign off and get on with our days here or or we'll let people go to bed in another part of the world <laughs> yeah so look water is a big part of uh of the firmness uh, story, that's for sure. Um, and you know, uh, what what I invested heavily in here was, and I and I said this when I came to to rural Melbourne. It's about you know teaching uh, greenkeeping skills to to the to the people uh, looking after the turf and, and getting them to understand that um, you know it's much better to 
pull a hose out of the back of your cart than it is to um, turn on a sprinkler head. So, um, and you know, if you if you run that style of management, you better commit yourself to it um, seven days a week. Uh, if you were a um, you know, in a Melbourne summer, you know, when you get those very high temperatures, um, you've got to be committed to that because it's quite easy to press the green button on the irrigation system and uh, close the door and, and go home and relax over the weekend. But to to run that uh, drier uh, hand watering style system, um, you, you've got to be uh, onto it in, in those warmer temperatures. So we, we try, try to teach um, people about the importance of that and how to hand water properly uh, and only water when we need to water. Um, and that's a skill uh, that takes a few years to, to um, accomplish. And even then we don't get it right. <laughs> so, you know, I, 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 it's one of the things I enjoy doing uh, most in, in, in my job. And I don't do it as much as I would like to these days is to getting on a hose and getting out there and, um, and watering um, watering the turf, um, but uh, yeah, I think to to get that firmness where you you know your your low your low drainage point will bounce um, the same as the the high higher areas. You know the only way you can do that is with hand watering. You can't turn on irrigation and water everything. You know you've got to just water around those areas. Uh, often uh, and just touch up the high spots. Um, so yeah, we're very, very um, conscious of the importance of hand watering. Um, and, and to the point where sometimes, you know, dealing with a mixture of grasses in your green, which is really what the Sutton's mix is, you know, you look down into it, you've got all sorts of different textured leaves and, and there's different um, components to that and they all behave differently so you can have one part of that mix is a, a lot more um, drought tolerant than the other part so you've just got to be careful you don't uh, dry things out to the detriment of the, the the density of the surface because then it starts to get bumpy and um, you, you you know you lose ground and i've done that plenty of times plenty of times you you, you know you run that um that knife edge of uh you know dry and firm and um and cooked uh, turf, you run that every day in, in summer. So, um, you know, you just got to be careful you don't get uh, overexcited with it. Um, and that's over the years, I probably, <laughs> that's what hap happens. But um, in terms of getting a, a green to play the way we want it to play and, um, and you know, to, to uh, favour the bent grass over the power, uh, all those sorts of things that watering part is, is critical and um, you know, I remember back at uh, Metropolitan when I was there um, in 2009 summer um, was a drought uh, quite a droughty summer and hot and we had I think for January and February we had something like four mil of rain for the whole two months and um, and hot temperatures um, bushfires um, uh, that year as well I think we I think we record I, I'm just guessing a little bit here but I think we only turned the irrigation on once over that summer and we had a, a separate system for hand watering and I think I'm right in saying that we used 
if say just under five million litres of water to maintain the greens for the whole whole summer and it was all all hand watering so um you know it, you can certainly be efficient with your water you get a much better um you know firmness scenario certainly favoring the bent grass over the past so all, all the advantages of hand watering it's a time commitment and we yeah we i was gonna yeah, we, we and we we now also try to apply that to the fescue as well. Um, so again, you know, you've got big areas of cool season grass that you've got to um, you've got to manage with hand watering. It's it's quite a time commitment. So, so. over thirty six holes, um, how many staff would be dedicated to that on a January twentieth day with uh, you know it's thirty six degrees and and a bit of a breeze? Oh, possibly. Six or eight on each course. Okay, so a, a few holes. Not not for the whole day, perhaps, but mm -hmm. yeah, afternoon. Yeah. Okay, and do you use soil surfactants or wetting agents? Uh, we have done, and we've tried a, a few, but um, we swung more to penetrance than anything there. So um, again, trying to not hold moisture in the in the profile, but keep it moving through. Um, so more more penetrance. I think we've again not not proven with data, but just visually, since we've been using penetrance, we see uh, certainly a firmer bounce. Uh, you know, often with the wetting agent, the old style wetting agents, you'd put them on and it would soften the surface for a while. Um, certainly worked uh, well, um, letting the moisture in and and, and holding it there, but. Um, uh, would soften the surface for a, for a period. Um, so the more modern type, penetrant type wetting agents um, are, are where we've um, swung to. And, you know, I think that's been to the benefit of what we're, we're trying to achieve. Um, so you yeah, regularly apply some type of surfactant? Yes, yes. Yeah, so four to six weeks. Um, sort okay. Of frequency. Yeah, I... I've got blog posts about uh, what wetting agents really do. And so I don't like the termogy, terminology like wetting agent thinking that that's going to hold water and penetrant thinking that it's going to make water move. Um, it's, it's more that the water gets distributed more evenly in the soil. Um, so when I say soil surfactant, I'm just meaning something that's going to have that effect of making water spread more evenly in the soil and allow the soil to be more easily rewetted because there's just no data that shows that these that different type of products actually hold water everything is anecdotal so i interject here with my scientific uh, uh feedback just to say uh i prefer the terminology of soil surfactant um and then you can choose which product is going to work best for your situation. And they all must work a little bit different. But I'm not sure that, uh, that a particular one is going to retain or, or, or push water through. Well, I'm old enough to uh, remember using uh, dishwashing detergent for, uh, as our wetter. Oh, Wow. <laughs> yeah, that, that that'll floor. burn it a little bit. Mm, yeah, well, it, it worked. It breaks down that sort of uh, oily coating and lets the water soak in. So, mm -hmm. yeah. all right. Well, yeah. Dawn, so, Dawn, I think Dawn, uh, Dawn dishwashing liquid. Mm -hmm. 
yeah, that. Not that I'm promoting it. <laughs> so if anybody has, if anybody has any more questions, we're still here. We w- we will answer them if you have any. Otherwise, uh, we will we will close out the show. I certainly have enjoyed talking with you, Richard. This is fascinating, and I think uh, I think not everywhere needs to have the kind of conditions that Royal Melbourne Golf Club produces. Um, but I think a lot of people are interested in how those are produced and some places do want to try to duplicate that and what uh you're doing which is you know some of it is is the way claude crockford used to do it the grass is certainly an old type of grass and you're using these old school green keeping techniques that are a little bit uh different than what uh, than what we typically get taught in turf school or the way that americans uh tend to manage grass you you remember that did uh did ben crenshaw say that he talked with claude crockford and or did claude crockford say that a lot about americans trying to grow grass and uh australians trying to keep it from growing but i've heard it told as ben crenshaw tells that story that he learned that's what he heard from claude crockford you know that's that that he's been been repeating what claude had said to him the, the other thing he said that was interesting um, recently in a podcast, I heard him speak about when he played here in a, in a tournament and um, he was fascinated by the, the firmness and the, and the dryness of the, the greens and the surfaces. And he, he said he, um, he, he wanted to make the point of to see what the, uh, the greenkeepers did after play in terms of the watering the turf. And he, he, he watched them and they came out with a hose and they, spent five minutes and put some water around this is on a you know, quite a warm day 30 degree day he goes well there you are they that's why they're firm and dry they just put a little bit of hand water on and then they, they go again the next day so um mm-hmm. definitely a, a fair bit in that uh, moisture management part of it so yeah well it is also when chris and uh and doug i'll put a direct link to that show in the uh in the uh, video description and in the show notes when I when I reshare this, um, so people can can listen to that. Um, Doug mentioned about grass growing better in soils that hold more water, and I think some of the fascination that people have with the, having a rapid saturated hydraulic conductivity, or we sometimes use the word infiltration rate, meaning that the water would just move right through the sands, makes it more difficult to have firm surfaces and makes it more difficult to grow good grass because you have to constantly be putting water on it. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think you've mentioned that whiter sand that had a more uniform particle size um, that was on the greens before, doesn't produce the type of surface that you want and it would dry down faster, but that's actually problematic. So maybe the sand that you have that might have some, a very slow infiltration rate, <laughs> but, uh, it, it might be holding some water down there. And then thanks to the hydroject, you can get roots down and, uh, and it allows us to, to work really well. Well, I think one of the, the, the things that, show that is, is the bunker the sand belt bunkers and the sands and, and the way that sand behaves in a bunker because you know it, it um, you know you can get it to produce a firm hard 
face that resists the ball penetrating in it, but in the bottom where you rake it, it becomes loose enough to be a, be a, a good bunker stand. And, you know, those edges, you know, the vertical edges around the greens, they stand up almost vertically like it. It's almost like a, a concrete type scenario. And so, so many architects have come from all over the world to sort of study that on the sand belt, not, not just at Royal Melbourne, but the sand belt type bunkering. And it's so much to do with the sand and the, and the characteristics of the sand being able to pack and uh, form that sort of resistant face in a bunker. But yet in the bottom where it's loosened up, it's, 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 a, it's a great bunker sand. So uh, I think the bunkers tell, tell a bit of a story about how the sand behaves as well. Yes, that those those are beautiful. How how do you uh, for anybody who hasn't seen the green edge goes right to the bunker lip and then it drops down into these deep bunkers? Uh, do you spin the mowers right on the green to turn them, or uh, or you choose a good direction so you don't have to turn by the bunkers? How does that work? No, no, just turn turn them on the edge, um, and you know the, it can. You know, if you're mowing frequently, uh, you, you probably sometimes would use something right on the bunker edge to just turn the mower on, like a, a turning board of some description. But in general, uh, you know, they cope with that, okay? Um, so maybe little... you don't use turning boards on a daily basis, only for f when you're mowing a lot? Uh, only on bunker edges that are under pressure, really. Uh, oh, okay. On, on the fescue surround, they, they just turn them there generally tournaments yeah you know, where you're cutting more often and, and multiple cuts and things um yeah they probably come into play a bit more but in general no just on the on the some of the bunker edges that are um, a bit more fragile in, in spots so yeah that that is excellent well thank you so much richard i really enjoyed talking with you about all this stuff and learning from you about this and I think now there's going to be people that are able to watch or listen to this from around the world who might be surprised by some of these things like uh, basically not top dressing uh, and still having surfaces that can be so firm. So, yeah, this is something that I'm learning about and I appreciate you being so generous with your time and with your information to share that with me so I can learn more and to share with all of our audience here. So thank oh. you. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, Micah, for the invitation. Um, you know, I certainly enjoy talking about it and I've enjoyed discussing it with you in, in recent times as well. Um, I think the more you you talk about it, the more you think about it, the more things um, you know, come, become clear to you. And so I, I do enjoy talking about it and hearing other people's comments and um, feedback's always important as well. And um, we're going to take uh, Chris up on his offer to... Uh, Bring, bring his hydroject out for us as well. So. Yeah, I I think that would be that would be good. I I maybe he could. I don't know. I oh, there was a comment earlier from uh, L W fifty says uh, he does see a, a fair amount of hydrojects for sale in the U S on the second and third hand market. Um, he says they seem unloved by most courses, uh, maybe because they of the relatively high maintenance requirement um but you you guys must have some expertise at, at keeping these things running yes our, our mechanics are um, 
uh, hard reject experts, definitely. Okay. Uh, you know, it, it, I think, you know, if I had a, if I had greens that were, had a gravel layer in them, it wouldn't be the machine to use, I don't think, because, you know, you might correct me here from the science, but I, I feel like that they would be washing uh, perhaps fines to the bottom of that profile um, if, you, if you're doing it, um, you know, regularly uh, all the time. But I might be wrong there, but that's the feeling that I sort of had. Whereas in a, in a deep sand profile, um, you don't have that sort of um, thinking or concern. Very good. Okay, Richard, I will go ahead and sign off now. So uh, well, I'll end the stream. We can talk a little bit more uh, if if you are available. Yes. So uh, I, I really enjoyed it. Uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. And uh, I will be back soon with more on the ATC Double Cut Show. And we'll try to do some more ATC office hours so we can do these live streams also. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye. Thank you.